Welcome to the, the Recruitment Radio Podcast. My name's Dan Dor, and every month I'll be interviewing a different recruitment leader, asking them to share some stories and some wisdom from their distinguished careers. I'll also be asking them to select and talk us through four tracks or pieces of music, which will feature in my monthly playlists available on Spotify through uh, the Powerhive network. The playlists I've chosen are, uh, are multi-generational, so I've chosen tracks from the last five decades. Uh, multi-genre, so a bit of soul, funk, hip-hop, house, drum and bass, disco, anything that I'm into, really. Um, and they've been chosen in response to common disagreement about what music should be playing in the workplace. Um, I've, uh, I've had a lot of fun putting them together, and um, so I'd, I'd like to welcome this month's guest. Is, uh, is recruitment royalty. Um, welcome, Gary, Gary Eldon, OBE. Um, <laughs> really building up there. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, like, keep going, keep going. Yeah, it's all right, it's going to sound like you're a bitch in a minute. Right, okay. <laughs> um, I haven't got many years left, so it's, it's, quite, it's, quite, <laughs> it's quite difficult to shorten your career to just a few paragraphs, but uh, um, a degree from the School of Life, yeah? Yeah. Uh, and a brief stint in insurance claims. Um, your career in recruitment started over 20 years ago. 28, 28. 28 years ago, sorry. Yeah. When you joined S3 as one of its first employees, quickly becoming one of the top performers. I think within five years, the, the founders, Bill and Simon, backed you to launch your, your own brand, yeah. Huxley Associates. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, S3's first banking and finance recruitment operation. And then over the next 12 years, uh, you tirelessly grew that, um, not only to be the most profitable brand in the S3 portfolio, um, but also the first to diversify into new markets as well, like engineering. Um, rapid international expansion followed to new locations across Europe, Asia, and the US. Um, and I think you know you made a bit of a name for yourself of your ability to to drive growth by putting the right talent in the right places, mm-hmm. which ultimately led you to being promoted to Chief Strategy, strategy Officer in 2007. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, on the, on the uh, S3 exec board, which had since become a public company after a FTSE listing. Um, more international offices and brands followed, including uh, a highly successful energy business, uh, and accelerated growth in North America, overseen by yourself. You, you did a stint out there with the family as well. Went to New York, yeah, it was yeah. an amazing time. Um, My daughter was actually born, born in New York as well. She actually born out yeah. there as well. Yeah. Nine, for November, 9-11, but UK 9-11, not and you, America. You, and whilst you were there, you, you were asked five new offices opening in the US, as well as S3's first offices in India, Japan, Brazil, Russia, and Canada. Yeah, So um, and they also closed those offices as well. We'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. Um, in, uh, in 2012... Not Japan, sorry. That's still going really well. That's still going really well, really well, yeah. Um, in 2012, you were appointed CEO yeah. of S3 PLC, uh, a, a role that you've only recently stepped down from. Um, and in your tenure there, uh, you've increased global headcount by 40%, increased gross profit by 55%, doubled both turnover and profitability. So, you know, I'd say that's a pretty epic fail all around. Yeah, I'd say so. The, the boy from Camberwell did all right, yeah? Did all right, yeah. Um, what, what, what are your first memories of, of being ambitious or wanting to be the best? My first ambition, I would say from a very, very young age, um, when I was young, we used to run school discos. And when we ran the local youth club as well, we would run discos there and charge on the door. 
and we'd give some of the money to the club that we run. And we Exactly. And um, so that was my first thing of trying to make money. And then that led to when I got to about 17, 18, and I lived in Campbellwell. Campbell's between Brixton and Peckham. So most of my friends from the school either from Pick, Brixton or Peckham. So we used to run house parties. So we had the Angels, Angel Town um, Estate, which we'd run mainly like reggae type parties Block there. Parties, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then in, in the Owlsbury Estate, we'd run um, a sort of really soul-ified estate. Bad boy sound systems, though, like, do, do, do you make an heritage? Yeah, well, we used to go and listen to King Tubbins yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and Tipper Irie and Smiley Culture Brilliant. and people like that. So my, I always try to look at ways of making money, and I think running sort of, and that led us to 19, in the eight, in the 80s, we tried to do um, warehouse parties as well. And um, in the warehouses, illegal warehouses, and you get raided and you'd have to, you know, hired and run. So um, I've always looked at ways of trying to make money um, in one way or another. I think my mum always said to me from a very young age that even when she used to buy clothes, I'd always want to design clothes. And she's like, who do you think you are, right? And I said, well, I'm not wearing that and I'm not wearing that. I want a Burberry and I want kickers and I want Farrah's. So for some reason, I just had this in me that I wanted to be more than just some little snotty-nosed kid that lives in the council estate. It's uh, I was trying to find some flies on you a little bit when I was thinking about you know your flies. Yeah, well, no, you know. So I thought back to a conversation that we actually had probably about fifteen years ago uh, when I was encouraging you to to take charity more seriously. I'm not sure if you remember that, right? Um, well, so I thought, right, I've got him here. Well, obviously, fast forward to today, and, and you're sitting here with an OBE for championing inclusion and diversity and a legacy that includes creating first CSR, well, the CSR board, the S3, yeah. the S3 Foundation, which has raised over a million for, for children, SOS. Yeah. Yeah, does that include projects out of Malawi as well? Yeah, I, yeah. Actually, I actually went to Malawi myself, so actually seeing it firsthand just really opened your eyes about what difference we can make. And then we had a, we built the money we put towards an S3 house, and you've got these orphan kids whose parents have died of AIDS or HIV, and seeing these kids and the smile on their face. And what I realised when I was out there, that, that although we had the house and good facilities, there was no playground as well. So being there, we built, we built a playground for the kids, uh, football pitch, swings. Um, I realised that some of the kids were walking for hours to get to school. Mm-hmm. And so we went out and bought bikes for the kids as well. So it's the little things that you can do. And we went out on one of the medical vans and they travelled for miles out. And there's queues and queues of kids getting access to medical, um, which we take for granted. And seeing that, it's just... It's unbelievable, right? Some of the most rewarding work oh, that you've done, yeah. yeah so, I, I look, it, yeah. you know, well, I'd probably like I say fair play. Like, you know, you made a promise 15 years ago and you've definitely kept to it. So, I, I kind of concluded that the only thing that I, I can actually call myself better at you at is DJing. And, definitely, uh, and judging, definitely. judging by your selections today, I reckon you'd be pretty good at that as well. And, so let's get to your first bit of music, okay. all right? All There's right. a reason why I'm not good at DJing, because one of my best friends was a DJ, so I just got lazy. Yeah, <laughs> just, just MCing instead. Yeah. Like, no, I couldn't right. even MC, no. so I can't even do that. Um, so so I, I asked you to uh, choose a track yeah. uh, from your youth. Yeah. Um, what have you chosen and why? Oh, Cheryl Lynn and Encore. Ah. So when I was about 15, 16, um, we used to go to um, a lot of local discos and we used to go to Lyceum Ballroom as well. Um, and this was one of my um, all-time favourites, right? It's a really cool, chilled, soul track, very vocal. And um, I just, it's one of my all-time. It's, you know, from being 16, 17, it's, just made, it's an amazing track, amazing track. Let's get into it. 
Released 1983, classic funk artist. Uh, another track of hers, actually, um, "Got to Be Real." Um, oh, got to be, yes, got to be real. Is, yeah. is 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 uh, probably one of the best tunes you can play at a wedding without completely selling out. <laughs> Basically, reflects my gigs these yeah, days, yeah, mate. Yeah, so yeah, fair weddings or birthdays, uh, no credibility anymore, mate. Um, I mentioned before diversity and inclusion. Um, which are increasingly topics of uh, increasingly important topics in today's world, I think. But they're also big buzzwords that are bounded around a lot. Um, and many smaller recruitment owners might not really understand how to apply them um, or apply the principles of them to their own business. Um, is there any kind of insights you can share about how they might be able to incorporate that? Or maybe even start by, you know, what is diversity inclusion to you, Gary? Yeah, so diversity inclusion, normally people associate that with um, colour, or male, female, gender, but diversity is it, it incorporates disability, um, a multitude of things. And a lot of it, if you look at when people interview in general, you generally interview people in your same guise, right? You, you look at yourself and you're familiar with people that are like you, who've been to the same university as you or brought up in the same areas as you, and then you and you can relate to them. They call it the halo and horn effect, right? Yeah. yeah. And our whole business, in that, if you look at the type of people we've taken on and, and, and the type of things we look for, is something that we're comfortable with. So what we need to do is educate the people that are interviewing, and a lot of it's at the middle management as well, who are making those decisions, and make them aware of the differences of people. And people will say things in a different way or react in a different way, depending on their backgrounds. And you need to try and understand. So just rolling out a diversity program for the sake of it, you need to bring maybe some external expertise to make you aware of the things that you're not even aware of, right? And they call it unconscious bias, right? Um, and that's, you can live with, but the worst type of um, issues I have is when you've got conscious bias, okay. right? Yeah, yeah. So I think we really, if you want to make a difference, you've got to educate yourself mm-hmm. and understand what diversity means and what does different people and how pe- different people act um, and be able to deal with that in the right way. And, and then you've got to educate the rest of your staff and then that can filter down to the rest of the business. That, that's you hiring, you know, for your own, for your own business, right? Any ways that you've that you've seen it applied, or you've applied it more from a client service perspective? Um, we've had look. We do a lot of clients who claim they want to do things. Yeah. And when push comes to shove, buzzword, it's just a buzzword, right? right? And I won't name. It's one investment bank for in particular said we want a diverse portfolio of candidates. It's for their middle office business, and they want anyone who's Asian or Nigerian, African sounding names. They said right, we want to see those CVs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But when you went for front office type roles. They didn't have the same thing. So they hit their quota on the middle office. So we've got a certain amount of working for the bank, but the front office is still white, middle class, white or white, white uh, male or females. So 
you've got I've got a lot of friends that work in sort of diversity inclusion and work for consultancies and there's a lot of noise out there mm. and people say they want to change but there's no real significant change I'm seeing even if I look at myself right so I'm gonna give you an example I'm I'm a CEO of a, public, a CEO of a listed company um, I'm of color yeah, my dad's from Jamaica mum's from from England I've got 10 years board experience Right? And there's a Parker report that goes out there saying we want to make a difference to create more black or um, BAME people as members of boards, right? So based on my background, CEO, PLC, 10-year board experience, there should be a queue of search companies lining up saying, Gary, do you want to do a non-exec role? Do you know how many times I've been contacted by a search company? Never. So... It's a lot of noise. Kick, kick, kick all the uh, search companies out there. <laughs> so my point, my point is, there's Parker reports, there's this report, there's that report. If it's going to change, we've got to start it's talking so about changed. it, right? So we've got to start talking about it. We've got to expose people, yeah. right? I think we've got to be a bit more controversial and say, no, that's not acceptable. And we've got, we've got, we've got to pull people on things. And at the moment, everyone's just going through the motions. It's beyond recruitment. It's beyond oh, of course. It's, it's society yeah. in itself, yeah. isn't it? Is, it, right. is, it is, it is, it um, is. So I, I, look, I'm quite passionate about it because um, I'm fortunate, right? I work for a company in S3 that I, I honestly believe it was based on meritocratic, meritocratic environment. Despite, I think, you know, looking at the female ratio in the business, it's nowhere near, at management level, it's nowhere near where it should be. So there's some form of unconscious bias going on there that we're not, and we're trying to change. So, but the founders in Bill, Simon and Russell, right, they're all, they're neutral, right? They, they don't look at colour or, or anything else. If anything, they're classist not racist right or, or so they look at people from certain backgrounds and might think well what have you worked how hard have you worked to get there get you yeah. a bad glass of wine <laughs> yes um, champagne socialists I'd say is what they are but to, honestly I'm lucky enough to work in the environment where I wasn't exposed to that but it, it happens and um, we've got to talk about it more got to talk about it more let's uh, let's move to your second track uh, so I asked you to uh, to choose yeah. a tune that categorised really like, you know maybe your early career Rising through the ranks uh, uh, at S3, Huxley's flying. Uh, what have you gone for? So this was more when I was at Computer Futures, actually. Ah, um, yeah, so 1990. I was, I think, I was about the 26th person they took on, and um, there's something me and Russell actually felt really strong because it was a one. I'm obviously my dad's from Jamaica, so the song has a means a lot to me. But the cleverness about it is, um, you got to get interviews. And that's what we used to sing, right? So when you listen to the track, we, we, we change the words to you've got to get interviews. So it's always linked to recruitment. So it's something that always gives me fond memories as well. Let's go in.
Funking for Jamaica by uh, Tom Brown, released 1980. He was a, a jazz trumpeter from uh, Queens in New York. Okay. Uh, featuring Tony Smith on vocals. I actually used to play that on vinyl uh, a lot. Um, it's, it was also, uh, I think, uh, of its time, quite a crossover track. A lot of the best tracks are crossovers. They cross different genres. And at the time, that, that was, you know, funk, jazz, R&B, disco in there. Um, and it made uh, the top 10 in, in the UK singles charts. Okay. As well. so wow, there you go. Trivia for you, mate. Thank yeah? you. Thank you. Um, so you've been running um, one of the most successful recruitment businesses uh, for the last, you know, 25 plus years. I just wanted to ask you, maybe you could share with the listeners some of maybe your your life methodologies or the life lessons or the kind of things that, you know, if you look, that you know now, that maybe if you were uh, a more budding kind of younger version of yourself you know what would you tell yourself what what advice would you give yourself um in my early career i i was distracted by it with other things right so i tried to let me try and do this and try and do that and you spend 50 percent of your time on the job and 50 percent trying to make money doing doing other things and if you put 50 percent amount of the effort into it you're going to get 50% of the return back. So this was stuff outside of Yeah, I was trying. I, I, I set up a Caribbean takeaway shop while I was I working with the beaches, which I did for a year. I and mean, it was the worst year. I used to work 16 hours. I'd finish work and then go and work in the takeaway. And uh, dealing with the general public was a nightmare. So, um, But when I, when I put the focus on, right, I'm going to spend all my effort on recruitment. Um, my philosophy was where I lacked in ability, um, where I lacked in skill, um, I made up in hard work. So if someone's doing a 12-hour day and they're smarter than me and they're better at sales, then I'm going to have to do maybe a 14-hour day. And if I'm doing a 14-hour day, I'm doing four hours more than them a day, times that by five or six, I'm doing 24 more hours than them. Then if that 24 hours, then I'm going to be just as good as them. And then when I'm just as good as them because I've been practicing more and I still keep the hours going, then I'm going to be better than them. So I kept it very simple, right? Work, um, work hard, yeah. work smart. Okay. Right now, there's people that work hard and don't work smart. So I'm lucky from my background of being, you know, where I was brought up. I had to be smart, otherwise you're in trouble, right? So I think I've got street smart, which you can convert into into business wealth. And I'm never feel intimidated by anybody. Um, I always I always spoke my mind. You never felt inferior. No, never, never. Even at, even at school, my headmistresses or my any teacher would say something to me. I'd still challenge it. So I remember Bill used to say, you're chippy. Not only you've got chip on one shoulder, you've got chip on both. And, I, and the reason why they promoted me very early... Chip shop. Yeah, yeah, hence the chip shop. Thanks, Dan. Um, the reason why they promoted me, really, is not because I was necessarily the best at the time, but I would always have an opinion. I'd always be honest, and I'd always do what for the greater good of the business. So to me, um, but, you know, work hard, work smart, um, and, and, and enjoy what you do, right? Um, I love recruitment. I think one of the, you know, I was never good enough to be a sports at sports, which would be anyone's dream job. I was never good enough to sing or dance. So this is my only option, right? It's recruitment and you're out with like-minded people. You do lunch clubs, you do incentive trips, you go to restaurants that you never dream of going to, you go to countries you've never thought you'd ever go to, and you're surrounded by really like-minded young people. It's amazing, right? Yeah. And I think there's very few jobs that I'd say is better than what recruitment can offer. Yeah. Uh, looking back, what's, what's maybe the biggest mistake you made? I mean, I put that into context because you're absolutely right. I think, you, you know, you've always struck me to be probably one of the most driven people that I know. And I think, you know, ambition, 
sometimes is, is having an opinion and being and having the conviction really to, to, to absolutely go for it yeah. and, and I guess that's not being scared of failure or, yes. or, or you know uh, not being scared of change sometimes as well yep. which, which can paralyze yep. people a little bit um, but with that surely comes mistakes I've made plenty of mistakes right because sometimes I back the person over the business right I'm a people person and I'm gullible to a good salesperson so someone comes in with a great reason to go somewhere and tell me why we're going to do this and they're really enthusiastic I back them and I've made, and sometimes I don't do the detail as much. And so therefore you then go down a route and you go, why did we do that? So I, ma I made a joke earlier about, you know, opening up in India. Um, and we opened up in India uh, as chief strategy officer. And when I was CEO, I closed India because looking at the market and the opportunities and the effort we put into it didn't make sense. Going to Brazil, although it was a great market, we could have opened four other American offices where you've got no issues about culture, got no issues about legislation, no issues about... Work yeah, yeah, you've got no issues, cultural differences, yeah. corruption. Yeah. We could have just opened four offices in the US where they speak English, understand. So sometimes my, I, my ambition overtakes what reality and sometimes I think you, I, I've learned to curb that a little bit now. I don't take things so much at face value. When I do look at businesses now, it's more about, tell me a bit more about the plan. And I want to see the detail and I want to see, you know, how that's going to look and not just, all right, it's a good person. Let's you, back need, you need both, don't you? You do need both. That's so I'm gullible, I'm gullible to a, a, a good salesperson and, a, and I'm loyal to people as well, right? And if someone's a good egg, um, I'll, keep, I'll keep backing them until I feel they've not got the energy to do it. And sometimes you just got to make that decision and say it's just not worth doing. And I sometimes let things drag on for too long. They always say, like, uh, you know, it's easy to sell to a salesman. It is, you know. What's, what's the dumbest thing that you've bought someone sold to you? I'm going to tell you a story. It's, an, it's a funny story, right? So I had a, I had a Ferrari Dino many years back. Uh, <laughs> and I went with a friend and we there was a reserve price on it. And obviously the... You owned it at this stage? I owned it at this okay. stage. All right. And then the auction. What, you put it up for? I put it up for auction. Okay. And then the auction house. What, thinking you needed to get rid of it? Yeah, I wanted to sell it. Yeah, I wanted to sell it. What, just make some money on make it. Make some money. Put that into something else, yeah? Just, I felt like it was a, it kept breaking down. It wasn't a reliable car and I needed to sell it. So You don't buy a Ferrari to be a It's a Ferrari car. Dino, right? It's, it's a classic. Right. It's a classic, Yeah, yeah, right? okay, all right. Um, so I went to the auction. So I know they're going to take their percentage of it. So, and there was a minimum price I'll take. So it came up for auction and they, they came up with a price and no one was bidding and it's below the minimum, it was below the minimum that I would take anyway. And I bid for it. And no one else, and then, bid, then someone else bid and I said, well, it's still below and I'm bid trying to push it up. And then the auctioneer went, sold to the man over, man over there. And I looked around, how can it be sold? How can I buy my own car? <laughs> and basically what the auctioneer had done is they'd reduced their commission so that it would it hit the oh. So I had to go up to the auctioneer and said, look, I'm really sorry, but I've actually just bid for my own car. And luckily enough, the person who, was a, who bid second to me, I actually sold it to them. But it they was, were right to take it in the end. They were in the end, but it was pretty embarrassing. Oh, man, that's funny. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to uh, your, uh, your third piece of music, your third track. Um, this is something that's a bit more personal to you. Mm -hmm. um, um, so... Uh, 
yeah, do you want to tell everyone what you've chosen and, and what, what it tells the listener about you? Yeah, so this is um, Roy Ayers. He's one of my all-time favourite artists. Um, and it's Everybody Loves the Sunshine. Um, there's two reasons why it's per- personal for me. Um, one, when I was young, we had a youth leader that took 13 of us to um, a place called Spetsy in Greece. And he was a big Roy Ayers fan. And he's played all the Roy Ayers tune, Pupulala, Everybody Loves the Sunshine. Um, and he used to play that every night. And we'd all get ready, we'd all go out, and we'd go out in the town with our boogie box and drop the music. And, and we just, sound. everyone in Greece was like, what's hit them, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that to me was my introdu- introduction to Roy Ayers. And then when I met my current wife, um, it was in the summer, I had a, a convertible car, and we used to drive around in this car, and every time the sun was out, we dropped this track, and it would be like, ah, oh, this is, you know, this is what it's all about. And to me, it's a special track for one falling in love with Roy Ayers at the time, and this was part of me falling in love with my wife. So that's why it's a beautiful, perfect sunshine track. Let's let's uh, let's have a listen. I've seen him play myself about 12 to 15 times. I've gotten to sign a, sign a record uh, for me, I think. Um, Jazz Cafe in Camden was yeah, regular. He's been there every, yeah. every year. Uh, yeah, Ronnie Scott's Moving Festival last year. Um, yeah, you, you've met him as well, you said? Yeah, I met him. I approached him about, well, this was eight, nine years ago. I was When I was getting married, I said, look, Roy, can I book you for my wedding? So he introduced me to his daughter, who's his manager. I said, yeah. Definitely, yeah, we're up for it. Agreed the price. Thinking I'm going to have Roy Ayers at my wedding. Amazing. And then four weeks before the wedding, he cancelled and told me he had a and he had a gig in New York, I think. Oh, uh, right. okay. And he cancelled on me. And, and that oh, put that, a little bit of shine it on did, there. It did, yeah. it did, it did. Um, and I went, I went, I went to see him about two years ago, and he 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 wasn't he wasn't on top form. So. Um, yeah, it's some, he's not singing wise. No, but boy, he can still play yeah, that vibraphone. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, all yeah, about yeah, that vibraphone. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Imagine the years twenty, twenty-five, six years from now. Um, what do you think the future of the recruitment industry looks like? What, what, what are the main threats and opportunities you think exist? Look, I, I think we're in a world where, especially in a lot of the markets where there's a shortage of skills, yeah, and there's a lot of markets where there's a shortage of skills. 
And therefore, from a supply and demand point of view, the human element of recruitment is pretty key still, right? It's hard to find candidates. It's hard to find the matching. And I think the you know empathy, understanding, all the sort of characteristics of being a human being, I think are still going to be very important in recruitment. And I think there's going to be a need for us to do that. In saying that, though, there are aspects of the business which are becoming more commoditized. And I think technology will start to play a more important part as well. And there's a lot of heavy lifting still done in recruitment. And because of the heavy lifting, it's very time consuming. Ma- ma- quite manual, manual processes, which yeah, can be a complete waste of time. So you, you spend so much time trying to get ambitious, bright people in, yeah. then they're spending so much time exactly. doing a lot of manual exactly. work, right? So if you can release people to spend more time selling, and, some, and, and get the machine to do the matching, get the machine to put the shortlist together, then I think that will start to have an impact in the recruitment world. And I think you might have more people then being able to talk to someone, yeah. which is great. And I think everyone enjoys interacting and selling rather than shifting through LinkedIn or job boards and trying to find a shortlist of candidates. So if an element, if element of that can be taken away, I think that will free it. But I still think the human interaction the relationship part is right? still quite important computer can't do that right? no can't build relationship but what it can do is a lot of the other stuff as well so i i do believe that if you look at the, how the industry's changed in retail music industry film industry we still got to be careful that we don't sit on our laurels and keep doing the same thing we're doing and think it won't impact us it will i think we've got to be aware of the changes um, and we've got to move with those changes but don't jump on something for the sake of it right think of how it can impact you we've seen it with if we're using MIS tools or we're using CRM systems, how that's able to take things away. Accountancy systems are becoming better. Look at the way we use banks now, right? How easy it is now to register with all these online type banks. Then we've just got to make that user experience and that interaction to be better. And we need to make the service better as well. Because we're in an, in an environment now where you're going to be judged on everything you do. So we've got to raise our game. We've got to make sure we do provide a quality service because if we don't, it's going to be all over social media. It's going to be all over any professional um, network. So we've got to be better at our jobs. But I think that's still key, but we've got to use technology to complement us. There's so much tech wreck now. There's so many of those products. I mean, you must have been pitched dozens of times a day nearly, yeah. et cetera, in, yeah. in, in, the job, in the job you were doing. Yeah. I think one of the, the overwhelming things is which products to use and how to get it into a, you know, a seamless workflow that actually works. Because if you start implementing the next new thing all the time, it's, it's just so slushy, you know. And I, and, I, and, I, and I know certain recruitment environments where, you know, the staff are just completely overwhelmed yeah. with 40 different points they got to connect too together, much. right? It's too much information. So, so yeah. how do you assess, how do you make the right assessment of like, you know, when it's something you put your weight behind to, 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 and actually put it into your process and when just, just to wait to see what's there's, happening? There's two things, uh, two ways of looking. Look at what's important to you as a business. So what KPIs are crit- critical to you? But there's also some process automation that you got to look at. That, that therefore brings people with skills who understand the whole process and project manage those process and bring in those skills to give you advice of how to do that. So in S3, you know, we've got this big team based in Glasgow. We've all learned while we're on the job and we don't know the full automation of how to do it. You bring external expertise in, they're going, why do you do the process in this particular way? If you do it this way, this way, this way, then that would be a more efficient way of doing it if you do it that way. That's external expertise that we didn't have. So I think some businesses are gonna to have to embrace bringing expertise not someone who's really good at selling. An external viewpoint often, because you're always exactly. the wood for the exactly. trees, right? Exactly. So stuck in your own way. Exactly. So. so I think you just got to 
open up what you're trying to do and don't try and be a master of everything because you just can't, right? You can't do everything. Be a great salesperson, be a great technical person, um, be a great man manager. You can't do it all. So just work out parts of the job where your strengths lie and then delegate to the people that have got strengths in other areas than you than yourself. Nearly that's all we've got time for, but I'm going to just move to your, your final track. Um, I asked you to, you know, select a tune. Let's imagine it's a... It's, it's a rainy Monday morning. You know, you've broken your own cardinal rule of having a few too many glasses of wine on a Sunday. It's resulted in an argument you misses. You didn't, you haven't slept that well. You know, you get out of bed and you know your, your Ferrari Dinos in your drive. Someone's <laughs> put a key down it, right? And like, um, so you and you get to, you get to work, and there's a real a real down mood over sales for everyone's shuffling bits of paper and you're like right I've got to wake this lot up I've got to get them up for the uh, for the day um, what track are you going to play to really uplift them so, this, so this, this this track um, was very big for me in in 1988 um, and that was the era of Acid House and and, and an era where you saw people from all different ethnicities all backgrounds all coming together and really embracing music. And I've never seen such a cultural change in my life. You know, before that, you had football hooligans all fighting each other and you had the, you know, mods and skinheads and rockers all before that. And this brought everyone together, the scene did, and the music to me was so uplifting and so spiritual. That, and this is the track that if I play that, I don't see how you can't feel good about yourself. Um, so this is a, an amazing track for me. Um, and I think I don't care how old you are and what area you're in. I think this all is an uplift, an uplifting track. It's a it's a last tune of the night. Hands up in the air and feel the love tune. Glad you selected this one, mate. by Joe Smooth. Uh, awesome message in the lyrics. Like I said, it's a real uh, uh, end of night house track. Hands up hands up in the air, feel the love. Um, so final question for you, Gary. If, if I locked you in a room for a year with uh, with just one album, um, oh, wait. You'd, get wow. pretty, you'd get pretty bored with it. Um, uh, but for a whole year, you just had to listen to one album. Oh. What would it be? Wow, you didn't, tell, you didn't prep me for that one. Oh, wow. This is gonna, this is, uh, this is the top of my head. Tough one. Miseducation, Lauren Hill. Like it. 
R&B flavors. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. Um, I know it's not my typical, but... I think, there's variety to yeah, that. I, I, I think that's on the top of my head. I'm sure if I walk away from it, you're going to get a close yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. through. Yeah. I'm sure there'll be a, there'll be a Michael Jackson um, off the off wall. Off the wall. Off the wall. Oh, yeah. That might be in there, right? So um, a Bob Marley. A Bob Marley. You're, you're, already, you're already at number <laughs> no. three, right? Yeah. Um, listen, pal, it's been it's been, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Uh, no thanks for coming to uh, to share um, some of your experience, etc. And um, take care. Thank Thanks, you. Buddy. Cheers, Thanks,